Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guests on this episode are Daniel Pink, best-selling author of When and Drive, and Kevin Rutherford, who's the CEO of Noon Hydration. This is a wide-ranging conversation about the world of work and just another definition of Where Others Won't. Daniel Pink, welcome to the show. Cody, thanks for having me. No, thank you. And Kevin Rutherford, welcome to you as well. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thank you. Really looking forward to this, guys. We're going to go vast. We're going to talk about all sorts of different things. Uh, but what I want to jump into first, uh, Daniel's written best-selling books about timing and motivation. And Kevin, you're uh, the CEO of Noon Hydration, and you're calling in from the Boston Marathon, which is an event built around timing and motivation. So let's start with that. Uh, I want to play around with these ideas throughout the show, but let's start with some specifics around hydration for you, Kevin, that all of the runners in Monday's event are going to set off at, you know, around 7.30 to to 10.30 a.m. So to clue into Dan's idea of when, let's talk about the when of hydration and, and athletes. Uh, it's particularly important in this event. So for the, the runners from the professionals right the way through to the age groupers that are racing on Monday, when should they start taking in water and then also your product noon as well so that they can get through the race and then how can they take on hydration through the race? Like what are you seeing as the optimal level for, for athletes at, at the Boston Marathon? Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, exciting weekend. If if you haven't been to the Boston Marathon, it's on Patriots Day in the U.S. Uh, on the Monday in April. It is absolutely a magical place to be. And most of the runners have qualified to be here for, for anyone that doesn't know that, which means they had to hit a certain time, um, whether they're pros or whether um, they're amateur age groupers, if you will, uh, to qualify to actually get to the starting line. So, so the, most of them most of them know know a little bit about what they're doing. Um, surprisingly, they don't always they don't know as much as I would hope uh, when it comes to nutrition and hydration. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about this: um, if I were to say timing, think of think of race day a little bit like the final exam. So don't all of a sudden change everything you did to prepare all year long for the final exam, right? And and or even game day if you want to use the sports analogy from from that that perspective. So whatever you've been doing, you should be doing that on race day. That being said, um, I, I would say this. My biggest tip for, for runners this weekend, as I'm talking to many uh, at the expo, is make sure you're hydrating plenty, plenty, more than normal um, for the two to three days prior. So that's the first place. Because I know when you talk about timing, I know you were talking specifically on Monday on race day, but I actually think what's even more important is the prehydration leading up to it in the last couple of days beforehand. And and here's here's one other tip, uh, as I've learned from our nutritionists and um, physiologists as well, is water alone, this is going to surprise people, but water alone, believe it or not, doesn't hydrate you. Um, meaning water will go right through you. It's when it connects with the different minerals. So you get that from your food. Um, it will then um, absorb that way with your body and that's how it hydrates you. So if you want to take an electrolyte tablet like noon or whatever your, your um, electrolyte supplement is, if you want to add in there, it will help you. Um, and I highly encourage you to do that, especially a couple of days before. One last thing for you, keep um, prehydrate two hours beforehand um, again, with electrolytes, pre is the most important time because you're setting yourself up for success. When it comes to race day, each, each aid station take in some of the electrolytes. Um, the, the thing that, to note here is you want to get your electrolytes through your fluid, but you don't want to get your fuel that way because that can cause some intestinal distress. So at each aid station, take a few sips. That's, it should be, I believe, every mile in Boston, if I'm not mistaken. So you don't really need to take in a lot. Just sip, sip, sip. If you prehydrated, you'll be good to go. Consistency, I guess, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, for the first wave, I think goes out at about 7.30. They're, they're starting to hydrate at, at about 5.30 a.m., which is kind of what I want to ask you, Daniel. You've written the book uh, about when and everything about timing and how it's uh, – something that we don't really think about, but is in incredibly important. So in, in this context, even what I'm interested in is this idea that 
a lot of the runners that are actually going to run, not the professionals, obviously, but the age groupers are going to uh, be setting out, you know, 9.30, 10 a.m., but that wouldn't have been necessarily a time where they'd be training during the day because they'd have day jobs. So between nine and five, they'd actually be in the office. And uh, I'm just wondering how, like the when of performance, it matters a lot more than people think, doesn't it? And, and you've done the research and read uh, read all the studies and, and written a book on this. So uh, if I'm training at, let's say, 5 a.m. before work, how might I be impacted if I'm actually running the race at 9.30 or, or 10 a.m. in the morning? I'm not sure. I can make a guess about that based on what the research says. But your your broader point, Cody, is spot on. Uh, I've looked, I look mostly at our performance of our brains, but there's some very good research on the performance of our bodies as well. For our brains, this one is 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 not even it's not even a close call. Our cognitive abilities, our brain power, does not remain static over the course of a day. It changes. It changes in fairly predictable ways. It can change in some pretty big ways too. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, um, uh, there's a cognitive aspect to say running a Boston marathon. Uh, my, my, uh, what we know about performance, and I don't know about long distance races. Uh, what's interesting is that there are some, there's some interesting evidence that actually later in the day, well after the marathon is over, late afternoon and early evening, that seems to be a time of slightly higher performance over large populations. And I think it has to do with body temperature more than anything else. So people who exercise late in the afternoon, early in the evening, uh, tend to have fewer injuries. Uh, They tend to enjoy it more. And there tend to be some enhancements in performance. Uh, Hand-eye coordination, for instance, is a little bit higher that time of day. Um, uh, Lung and heart capacity is a little bit higher, which would obviously help the long distance runners. And uh, speed is actually higher. There's a disproportionate number of world records in speed events, like, you know, Mm -hmm. really just sprinting and bikes and speed skating and whatnot uh, uh, held at that time of day, Uh, you know, uh, that were set between, say, 4 p.m. and and 7 p.m. local time. Now, to zero back to your question, my hunch, and it's only a hunch because I don't know the research on this, is that if if, if you were used to training at five in the morning and now you're running at 10 in the morning, it actually might be slightly advantageous because your body temperature is going to be higher and you're going to be a little bit more warmed up, a little bit less prone to injury. But that's only a guess. I'm okay with hunches. Um, but the, yeah, the reason I was, I was really interested and we're not going to talk about the Boston Marathon for the whole episode, but I wanted to start there because, um, yeah, it does, even for me, coming from a team sports background, most of the events are in the evening. You know, 7 p.m. is is when the Toronto yeah. Maple Leafs play. 7 p.m. is when the Raptors play. Um, right. And and so you know, their team sports and the athletes, their days are built around performing at that time. And then you throw in this. Right. You know, you, we've got this event on. It's you know the premier probably marathon in the world, and these guys are out there running at 7 a.m. And even to me, I was like, yeah, what does that what does that do to our physiology, our brains, our, our performance, and, and how do I actually train for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I also think, I also think, Cody, there's, there's going to be a big difference, or, or at least a recognizable difference in the response to this between professionals and amateurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. My hunch, and again, it's only a hunch, is that professionals more or less have, have begun to factor in these kinds of time of day effects, or maybe have yeah, accustomed themselves to it a little bit more than a little bit more than, than amateurs have. So um, now the other thing about it is, is that the, you know, part of our, part of how we respond to timing issues has to do with something physiological, which is called our chronotype, which is our propensity. Do we wake up early and go to sleep early? Do we wake up late and go to sleep late? And so some of us are very strong larks, morning people. Some of us are very strong owls, evening people. Most of us kind of are kind of in the middle. And there's some evidence that certain that that people go to migrate towards certain professions and away from other professions because of their chronotype. For instance, school teachers are disproportionately larks because school starts insanely early for these for for kids. Mm -hmm. So my hunch and once again, it's I got I know where I have data, I'll give you data where I have hunches. I want to be clear that it's a hunch. My hunch is that. For long, long distance running, people who are not larks or people who are really or people who are owls probably 
will it would end up opting out of that as a sport because so much of the training and so much of the work gets done in the morning. Right. I have a question. I have a question. Can I can I ask one here? Um, of course you can. For either of you, or probably Dan, Dan on this. Here's here's a question. Can you rewire your brain to be a lark? Right. So That's great. maybe yeah, you're not. Yeah. Sure. See us later, but yeah. Uh, you know what, uh, Kevin? It's really really hard actually. Uh, now what we do know about the uh, chronotypes is they change over time. They change as we age. So there's some age. There's some sometimes significant age differences. So for instance. Little kids tend to be very larky. They, you know, they get up early and start running around like crazy people right away, uh, but they fall asleep early. Now, around our mid-teens to our mid-20s, there is a sizable move toward lateness, sizable move toward lateness, uh, sometimes by two or three hours. In general, for most people, that begins to uh, slope downward as they, as they age. So if you look at, you know, again, not every single person, but if you look at, say, the chronotype of people over 70, and under 10, they're very, very similar. Now that said, there's still you know a decent number of us, 20% of us who are strong, who are strong, who are strong out. So think your body, your 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 chronotype could change a little bit over time. In terms of, of whether you can actually affirmatively rewire it, no. I mean, it's really, really hard. You can you can you can um, you can uh, work the edges a little bit, but it's a pretty fixed biological characteristic. So for instance, like I would have had a far better chance of playing for the Raptors if I were six foot 10, but I can't just will my, you know, I'm six foot, I'm six feet. I just can't will myself to be six foot three even. Um, you know, I can't, you can't put me in a stretching machine and make me six foot two. Uh, and so, uh, and so, and this ends up being a, a big problem because when we go into the workforce, there is a lot of bias against owls. I mean, people who say, oh, you're not at your desk at 8.30 in the morning, you're a slacker. Uh, and there are a lot of people who, for whom being at their desk at 8.30 in the morning is miserable, and yet they're capable of doing amazing work at 8.30 at night. And so when it comes to the workforce, we're be much better off trying to rewire the workplace rather than we are trying to rewire the people. Totally. And, and so just let's, let's use that as the segue because this show is about the workplace and culture and, and leadership and, uh, you know, your, your book, When – Dan is is based around this idea of peaks and troughs and recovery and and how uh, you know people's uh, chronotype actually impacts uh, their day in general and that the, the idea that all time isn't created equal. So, thinking about that nine to five workplace, can you just kind of walk us through yeah. this idea of peaks and troughs and recovery, what that is, and then uh, we'll yeah. jump into maybe some ideas that people can take away about how they can remodel their, their days or their workplaces to, to fit in with this. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, this, this whole conversation is very apt be because I am a, I mean, directly relevant. So I was actually taking notes when Kevin was offering hydration tips because I'm running a half marathon a week from today. And I, I, I have some problems with hydration. It's like, I don't really like drinking that much, but then I find myself, you know, dying at the very end. But I like this final exam analogy here that he gave. So it's great. can you Meanwhile, can you speed shift? Can along. you speed shift some, some noon to to Dan Kevin? I reckon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have some. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, believe it or not, I have some. I I have some in my little uh, little uh, capsule thing, Majid. Yes, exactly. Um, what half marathon are you doing? I, I'm doing. Uh, it's actually a very small one here in Washington D.C. It's called the, It's called Carter Rock. Um, oh, okay. But I, but uh, it's it's in Montgomery County, Maryland. It's called the Carter Rock uh, Half Half Marathon. I actually not uh, that I want to talk that you guys want to talk about me, but I actually try to do <laughs> not try to do. I do a half marathon every month. Um, just to keep myself, just to keep myself slightly less insane than I am otherwise. But I've always had a, I've always had a I've always had a challenge with, I've always had a challenge with hydration. And the truth, and the truth is, is that I actually don't love running in the morning. So I, so I'm actually miserable during the beginnings of these races. And even today, and I'll get off my my own stuff in here in a moment. Although this is very therapeutic talking to you, the, um, the. Uh, even today, you know, you, the three of us are talking on a Saturday, and, and today is a day that I'm, I'm going to do a long run. Not anything massive, but, you know, I was going to do eight or ten miles. And I actually got up and got ready to go at eight o'clock, and I said, oh, it's too early. I can't do this. So I'm going to end up doing my long run at like, at, at like four in the afternoon when I feel just so much better and more warmed up. 
But anyway, enough about me. Let's <laughs> talk about the world and, and the people who inhabit it and the craziness of their chronotypes. So here's what we know. As I mentioned before, uh, about 15% of us are very strong larks. 20% of us are very strong owls. Most of us are kind of in the middle, although even the people in the middle tilt a little bit more toward lark. Um, and so, uh, so, to over, so to oversimplify things a bit, let's think about a world of owls and non-owls. So let's think about a world where 20% of the people are owls and, and 80% of people are not owls. Mm -hmm. um, here's what we know. Most of us move through the day in three stages, as Cody was mentioning. There is a peak, there is a trough, there is a recovery. Peak, trough, recovery. Now, uh, most of us move through the day in that order. The 80% of us move through the day in that order. Peak early in the day, you know, sometime in the, you know, in the morning, trough early to mid-afternoon, recovery late afternoon and early evening. Right now, owls, very different people, much more complicated. Uh, the thing about the owls is that they end up moving, that they end up uh, hitting their peak much, much, much later in the day. You know, not only late afternoon, it could be early evening, it could be mid evening, it could be late evening. Their peak comes at the end of the day rather than at the beginning of the day. Now, here, here's, here's what we know. During the peak, that's when the key attribute of the peak, no matter whether you're having it at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, is this. During the peak, that's when we are most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilant means you're able to bat away distractions. Uh, so that during the peak, that's the best time for what social psychologists and others call analytic work, which is work that requires focus, heads down and attention, writing a report, analyzing data. We do better on those kinds of work during our peak, which for 80% of us is early in the day, for 20% of us is late in the day. Now the trough. For almost everybody, that trough period is the early to mid-afternoon. That ends up being a terrible time of day in ways we don't, we're barely, we barely recognize. There are huge decrements in performance. And when I say performance, I'm mostly talking cognitive performance here. But there are huge drops in performance during that period. I mean, you see it in healthcare, you see it in education, you see it in certain measures of corporate performance, you see very different outcomes in jury and decision, jury and uh, judge, judicial decision making. So during that trough period, it's such a bad time, that's when we're better off doing administrative work, work that doesn't require massive, sharp brain power or creativity. Now, final stage, okay, which really applies more to the 20, to the eight, to the 80% than to the 20%, but it, the recovery, the recovery period, is an interesting period because what happens is, is that our mood changes over the course of the day. And at that point in the day, late afternoon and early evening for about 80% of us, our mood is back up, but our vigilance is not. So we have higher mood, lower vigilance, but that creates a kind of positive looseness that is conducive to things like brainstorming, iterating new ideas, solving non-obvious problems. Uh, what, what, again, what social psychologists and others will call insight problems, problems that don't bend to mathematical logic, that need more divergent thinking and creativity. And so what the research tells us is that we should be doing our analytic work during the peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our insight work during the recovery. It's easy to say, but most of us, the vast majority of individuals and organizations don't do anything close to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is fascinating. And uh, thank you for that as well, because um, that's uh, just uh, something that I think, you know, <clears throat> to your point earlier, is we tend to think of it as remodeling human beings, when I, I think the actual solution is to remodel the workplace and, and the way we, we've been working. Um, around the human beings that we have access to. And interestingly, so I was going to ask you this, Kevin, because you guys put a lot of thought into this and your whole business, and I've seen you guys up close and, and you and I have known each other for a little while and uh, your company just brings so much energy to the events that they're at. And most of your marketing is done at events, whether that's trade shows or actual half marathons and marathons, uh, cycling events, triathlons, you guys just show up and you bring energy. But um, that could be any time of the day. You could be at a marathon at, at seven o'clock in the morning, or you could be at a trade show at 10 p.m. So uh, do you guys uh, have particular strategies that you're using, even amongst the executive team for such a, a fragmented workday that you have? I love that. Um, that's a good question. And I, 
I'm, I'm really grateful that you recognize that, Cody, when you've seen the team in action, because uh, they can be long days working at events, if you, if you oh. use the example where you've interacted with the yeah. team. And and the energy of this team, like uh, in my experience, I don't know if it's sometimes because the CEO's there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, the, the, the energy is magnetic. Like you can just feel it. And the crowds that swarm around the noon booth, I firmly believe it's more about our team and the people than it is just the product itself. And then crowds attract crowds. So there's something going on there. Um, I, I think a couple things here, um, and I'll, I'll come back to this one because I, I was thinking about when, uh, Dan, when you were taking us through the three steps and I too was taking notes, man, I go, man, this is a good idea. Oh, this is how we can adjust this where you were going, Cody, of some of the things we're doing. So I'm constantly trying to learn and see what we can do differently. But I was wondering, um, there's a couple of things when I think of the, the larks versus the owls and it was the diet that can apply um, that you have, like yeah. what's your nutrition. And I have to believe poor nutrition can lead to an even worse trough. Um, and I can say that from personal experience because I really didn't have a name for it. I didn't call it the trough, but I called the two, two o'clock lull. And I'm like, how do I get rid of that? So I, I adjusted my diet like a decade ago saying, how do I increase what did you do? during that time? Tell, tell uh, me what I, you changed. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've actually um, kind of made a few evolutions since, since then. But what I did was I said, oh, well, I need to go to much more plant-based diets. Um, and then I went, I actually went really extreme um, and didn't, I actually didn't know what vegan was at the time. Um, I really didn't. I didn't know what that definition was. And so I went to as many water-based foods as I could get because what I was learning was meat was really hard to digest. It took a lot of energy um, to break it all down. It takes hours among hours to do yeah. it. And so um, meat, as an example, becomes an energy taker, not an energy giver. And so I went to this raw vegan diet. Again, I didn't know that's what it was called. Mm. Um, and, and it worked. To be honest, it worked. Um, so the truth be told, as time went on, I was already pretty fit. And I was losing weight and my wife's like, uh, Kevin, you need to get some calories in you and you need to eat more. And I'm like, I'm eating all the time. And she goes, yeah, but you need some calories. Um, and she was right. Uh, and eventually it started to catch up. My energy started to come down. And again, my intention was actually never to lose weight. That wasn't my goal in this case. Um, so I did introduce back in some, some dairy and I introduced back in fish since then, I've actually cut dairy back out and I've cut out fish and I eat primarily a plant-based diet, but it's not raw vegan by any, um, by any stretch. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I say that, sorry, Cody, if I, I actually end up um, going a little bit on the side, but that idea, I think diet nutrition can play a role in the trough, I would think, right? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, although it's, it's not the only thing responsible for the trough. I mean, it's pretty... The trough period is, is pretty widespread. I mean, arguably, it is. You, you can actually make a case that it is uh, an evolutionary response. So, if you think about it, um, the let's go back in the let's go back to the time when human beings were evolving. Okay, we have to think about how much our bodies and brains evolved in a mm -hmm. radically different world. Okay, so um, and so I mean the out the ex, the external world, the world of technology, the world of of um, populations, the world of people inventing stuff and doing stuff changes far faster than our brains and bodies evolve. So we have these brains that evolved when human beings were out on the savanna, right? And so um, if you're out on the savanna, you know, and, and again, why, why are we on the savanna? Because that's, we came down from trees, okay? So we come down from trees, we're on the savanna, and here's the thing, all right? Um, we're, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're scratching out a subsistence living, out on the savanna, I mean, there isn't anything really in the way of even at the, at, at the early, uh, obviously at the early stages of evolution of like, like dwellings or houses or condos or anything like that. So what happens is that the people who had a propensity to get sleepy in the early afternoon, they ended up taking a nap underneath a tree. The people who didn't have that propensity were out in the burning sun dying of heat stroke. And so the gene for getting sleepy in the early afternoon ended up making its way through the human, uh, through human evolution um, in a way that the gene for being wakeful at that time didn't because it led to people's death. All those people died out. So there's an evolutionary, there's a possible evolutionary explanation for that. The diet plays a big role. And, and a lot of it is 
you know, I, I mean, I've been looking at a lot of the research on diet, and it always seems, you know, kind of, it seems to me there are two things going on uh, always with, with diet. It's that you, always, you end up hearing these very contradictory things, but then you also hear everything coming back to the same general principles. And what it seems like the same, the general principles, when you look at the effect of diet on mood, when you look at the effect of diet on metabolic health, when you look at the effect of diet on weight, it basically comes back very much to, Kevin, what you were saying, which is, you know, eat you know, a heavily plant-based diet. Uh, don't eat a lot of processed food. Uh, uh, avoid sugar like crazy. Um, don't, you know, avoid sugar and processed foods like crazy. Eat a lot of fruits and vegetables whole grains, good fats, and limited amounts of meat, but, you know, some decent amount of fish. And no matter what we're trying to figure out, again, whether it's metabolic health or whether it's weight or whether it's, you know, avoiding various kinds of mental calamities, that seems to be what it all comes back to. So I think that that general approach makes a lot of sense. I actually, myself, and again, there's going to be, there's going to be incredible individual variation too. For me, I actually try very hard to avoid eating carbohydrates midday, um, and instead, uh, much more toward protein and fruits and vegetables, um, because um, uh, they supposedly have uh, a greater effect. You know, uh, the, uh, if, if my body is processing carbohydrates, it could lead to some sleepiness in a way that processing proteins does not. Which is your kind of original point there, Kevin, around like uh, trying to avoid a, a huge trough rather than, you know what, if it's inevitable right. from a genetic perspective, that's fine, but uh, you can also contribute it to. Yeah, you can. Exactly. Exactly. You can, you can, you can mitigate. The other thing is just to be clear about these chronotypes and, and these patterns and things like that. It's not as if we're hostage to these things. I mean, Kevin's team right. is able to, why is, you know, Kevin's team, like, like there's things like alarm clocks and alarms on phones. So they can get up. Uh, to and be at the and I, I think I remember the half marathon where I saw noon for the first time. It was the uh, the Golden Gate half marathon in San Francisco. Um, sure. You guys were you guys there? I think we're actually on course for that one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's I, I think that was the first time that I encountered you. And so you got these enthusiastic people at seven o'clock in the morning. Why? Because they're not hostage to it. I mean, they can wake up, they can have a cup of coffee, and if they feel like they're doing something important, they can they can. They, 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 can over, they can overcome that. So it's not as if, you know, we, we're, we're completely, you know, it's not, it's not as if there were these corks bobbing on these waves on the ocean. Uh, we can exercise some volition. And, and one of the ways that we can exercise volition is to take more breaks and take better breaks. Uh, breaks end up being far, especially when it comes to, it's true for physical performance, but uh, for when it comes to cognitive performance, uh, whether it's memory, learning, uh, productivity uh, breaks are much more valuable than we realize. So, Kevin, uh, how yeah, how how do you guys bring the energy? Let's 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 go back to that because I'm 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 curious to to hear, um, you know, what things do you have in place so that at seven a.m. or seven p.m. your guys are still bringing the the rain? <laughs> I don't know if I have a simple answer, but I will I will do my best to explain how this crazy magic seems to happen with the team. Um, actually, Dan, Dan touched on a little bit around purpose, right? That leads to mission and we all share that one thing. So what a, what a lot of people may or may not know, um, even with the growth of noon, the one thing that remains very constant with our team is our mission is all about inspiring more movement, right? And then, and I'll get to like kind of four things that I think are hard coded into the people for values in terms of how we behave. Um, but if you think about that mission and inspire more movement, and we happen to sell what we think is the best hydration product out there, but really, I think we're actually in the business of getting you to move more because we think it's hmm. the key catalyst to health and vitality. And, and so we're obsessed with that. And by the way, if that doesn't fit you, like if you're like, no, I don't really care about that. Think of new people coming in. Um, you probably are going to be miserable in the noon culture. Like it really, like it's probably not your place. And I'm trying to be a jerk. I go like, this is who we are. And that won't change. That's the one constant that we all have to agree on. You can get diversity of thought all around that, but we need to be all obsessed with this mission. So I say that because that's what you should feel coming through from, from the noon team. And so 
I, I kind of look at it, um, I'm trying to make values um, a little more tangible. So I've, I've been giving a lot of thought to this and I've had the chance to speak about culture as the ultimate competitive advantage. So similar to how you're thinking, Cody, when you and I chatted at the beginning. Um, and I look at it this, there's four fundamental traits or values that I, I've personally, you know, I've pushed to infuse on any team I've been on. And the four that I tend to use, and they're, they're not perfect, but at least it goes, okay, so if this is hard-coded into each individual, therefore it becomes hard-coded into the culture. One, be a servant leader, right? How do you help others win? That could be the people you're talking to, and, and the team knows all this. Like, I'm constantly preaching it. That's a great example of servant leadership. Um, an example, by the way, of servant leadership comes from anywhere in the organization. So here we are staying at an Airbnb in Boston, a bunch of us packed into this room. Um, and you know where I'm sleeping, and this is very common, anyone would do it. I'm sleeping on the floor on the air mattress, right? And, and I mean that sincerely. I literally slept on the air mattress last night. But that's not uncommon, and anyone else would do it too, right? So I guess it's a little bit, you know, with a Simon Sinek of leaders eat last, that type of attitude. But there's times where it's not me, it's someone else. And so that rotates. So servant leadership is key. Energy giver. To me, and this is probably what you're feeling, and I try to communicate this to the team and remind myself by communicating to them, I remind myself to do it. At any given point, any one of us has a choice at that moment to be an energy giver or an energy taker. So it builds off of that servant leadership. And I go, what's your choice? And an energy giver doesn't mean everything's always positive, just to be clear. So mm -hmm. in business, we all have issues. It means then dive in to solve it, move it forward. How do you keep progressing it as opposed to the vent, venting and cynicism that can happen on a lot of teams in sports or in business? Um, the, the third one is about accountability. This is a simple one, right? And this is where we have to, you know, hey, Jill, that's not cool. Or John, that's not cool. Meaning accountability. Say what you're going to do and do what you're going to say and make it time bound um, and really try to stick to those goals and hold each other accountable. It's like you missed or awesome job. You'll see that congratulatory piece um, happening in there. And the fourth one I feel is about grit and perseverance, right? So, and that grit to me is when the, when times are a little tough or maybe we're hitting that trough, right? At the expo this afternoon at the Boston marathon, spark it up, be the person that gets things rolling and lead by example. And so meaning there's always going to be tough times. Do you persevere or do you, do you kind of tuck away and hide and try to avoid it? And so like, that's what I keep saying. Hard code this in. If you're not living these things leading to our mission, again, this may not be the place for you. And if it is, this stokes you and gets you fired up, you're in the right spot and you're going to have a lot of fun doing what you're doing. And, and, and truth, truth be told, for the most part, um, I think the team says, I love this. Like, I love this attitude. And it showed in the results for the last couple of years where we were named a top company to work for by Outside Magazine, because it really comes from the employees on the survey at the end of the day. That's the number one catalyst. So it really has nothing to do with what did I tell Outside Magazine for the ranking. It's the employees. So, yeah, uh, it, again, it's a little fluffy, but that's how we do it. And well, Kevin, let me, ask you, let me ask you two questions about that. Uh, Number sure. one, how do you how do you screen how do you identify those attributes when you're hiring, and how if they're even measurable, how do you measure them once people are on your team? Okay, great questions, and I've been thinking about the measuring part in particular. Actually, I've been thinking about both of them, um, obviously. And they're connected, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I I will tell you, I don't actually have a really strong measurement and it kind it actually is bothering me. Um, and I was just talking to some folks at dinner last night about this. I'm like, how do we measure this? Because what gets measured gets done. Right. And I, I was just, um, I had a conversation earlier this week with, with the team over at whoop, W H O O P. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And I, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about sleep. I love what they're doing. And I was learning a lot about it. And I go, you know, what's amazing about this is what gets measured gets done. All of a sudden you're thinking about sleep performance, which I never put those two words together before until mm. that conversation. Now I'm like just obsessed with it, um, trying to learn more. And so putting measurement now makes me want to figure out how do I sleep better? How do I recover better? And I don't have that on those four traits, like of a true measurement. 
However, challenge taken, I am going to try to figure that out um, with the team. I, we're we're going to figure that out, and I think it's important. Uh, and when it comes to hiring, it's it's tough. It's tough, and we've had some some good ones um, on our hiring practices trying to find that through behavioral based questions, um, which is you know typical HR, I guess if you will, um, processes. But it's not perfect, um, and I, and I and I know that. So we're really trying to peel it back. You get them to interview with kind of a diverse set of faces across the company, not just the hiring manager or within that function. Um, but it's, again, that's not as, as quantitative as I would like. So mm-hmm. probably not a, the best answer, but that's, that's the truth. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, is there a way for you to, is there a way, I'm sorry to butt in, but is there a way, do you affirmatively try to develop these things, uh, either, for, either formally or informally inside of the company? Like flexible servant no. leadership, would you, I mean, would you, would you have, you know, the most reductive thing to do would be to have courses on it. But, um, but uh, so I don't know if you do that, but do you, is that a word like servant leadership? Is that a word you, like people will use internally at noon? Absolutely. Used all the time. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Sometimes jokingly, sometimes you'll uh-huh. hear like, now that's, now that's servant leadership. Kevin slept on right. the Like I just right. got like, uh-huh. Hey, hey I just brought you a cup of coffee. Yeah. That's servant leadership. Right. However, that being said, the fact they keep repeating it, I think yeah. actually manifests itself into the real deal because when something happens and it's not servant leadership, that's mm-hmm. when people have to have the radical candor, radical candor, right? And go, that now that Kevin, that's not servant leadership. That was like, right. that was all about you or you, right. you let us down. Right. So I think radical candor is one way it manifests itself. I like your idea, by the way, on education on each one of those. Uh, in some sort of learning lab around it, um, and we are we are doing that. We're truthfully we're, we just put our new values in place earlier this year because I think intangibly we were already doing it, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to codify it so that it becomes more of the same language that we're all using, and then we put it into practice. And then to your point earlier, I, I need to find a way to. Why not? I shouldn't say I. We collectively, because it's it's really not about me. It's about all of us. We need to find a way how to measure this so that we can measure ourselves. Am I progressing or not or falling the wrong way? Um, mm-hmm. But we, we don't have it. But I, I do think um, 360 feedback, you know, reviews is one way. There's also how do you have managerial feedback um, a little more frequently as well and enforce those. But I, I would say we're, we're probably mediocre at best at that today. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was funny because I had this same conversation on the episode that I did with Whitney Johnson and, and Claude Silver. And, and I was asking Whitney along these same lines of how do we, you know, we know all these things now, servant leadership, you know, accountability, grit, all, all these things that uh, right now we don't think we can measure or measure adequately about people, particularly at the interview stage. And, and the flip side of that is that no one's going to report those things on their resume in the first place. And so, um, you know, what we're going to look at if we're adding a salesperson is you sold X amount of million dollars to these clients and then you just, uh, you match up, well, our clients are similar sizes, so this person can probably figure out how to sell my product. And, and that's kind of how the exchange goes. So I bring you in for an interview. Um, you know, one thing that I think is we're potentially trying to shoehorn this new world of values and behaviors into the old world methodology of interviewing. And we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier in terms of flipping the workday around to, uh, to match the human beings. Uh, I would argue maybe we should be looking at flipping interviews on their head and finding ways rather than just sitting there uh, you know, face-to-face at a desk with a bunch of people and some paper in front of us, how can we actually better interview to find these things out? So who's a servant leader and what's an example of that? And, uh, you know, who's a talent developer within an organization? So, you know, as a manager, how many of my people have gone on to do bigger and better things once they've left me, either inside my own organization or externally? Um, But yeah, just, it kind of strikes me that we are just trying to, we're trying to codify everything and then just shoehorn it back into the traditional interview process. And I think that whole idea is, is potentially broken as well. So um, th- it could be an idea to, to maybe flip the whole thing on its head and try something completely new. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, if you look at if you look okay. at the re- if you look at the research on job interviews, I mean, traditional job interviews, the kinds of job interviews where, you know, like I'll say I'm interviewing at noon, and so I interview with, with with, uh, or I'm interviewing at company X, and I interview with, you know, four people there, and they all ask me a variety of questions. Oh, why do you want to work here? Where do you see yourself in four years? If you were a a, a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? You know, all those. <laughs> Those those that those kinds of those, those traditional kinds of interviews have zero predictive value, zero. Um, what does seem to have predictive value in interviews are uh, structured interviews where everybody asks the same question. Therefore, you have a common way of evaluating. Um, so structured interviews. So everybody's going to ask the same five questions, or and you're going to ask the same five questions to a variety of candidates, or it doesn't have to be five, but whatever the number is. And then uh, the other thing is actually having people do one of the tasks that the job requires. So if it's if you're hiring, say, a copywriter for an ad agency, give them a portfolio of things and a, and a client and say, hey, go, you know, take take 24 hours and go write some copy. That ha- but otherwise, the other stuff is, is really just kabuki theater. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, as a copywriter myself, uh, I would love that interview. So <laughs> you can come in, I can come in and answer all the questions you like, but uh, yeah. you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding of, of my work. And then, um, yeah, Absolutely. I think there's, there's other ways. Um, What's your biggest weakness, Cody? <laughs> oh, I work too hard. I'm too loyal to my boss. You know, it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And wait, did I interview with you, Dan? Did you, did I say that? I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> and we've and we know that the funny thing is, both sides of that equation, the the potential employee and the employer, both know that they've just been on Google ten minutes beforehand, looking up the questions and the answers to those questions. And so, um, that's one of my pet peeves. But I want to actually, I want to let you go on a rant for a second here, Dan, because I know one of your pet peeves is meetings. So, <laughs> why, why, uh, and meetings in the workplace. So I want to give you the floor for this a little bit because it's it's something that I've been uh, struggling with as well. But uh, given all of your research and your books, and we're talking about you know when activities are performed, uh, meetings in the workplace. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, we're 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 bringing certainly when it comes to the when question, we're bringing zero, and I mean that zero strategic thinking to the when of meetings. Like give you so there is not a single place. In, in North America where someone says, we're going to have a meeting. Okay, what kind of meeting is this? Do we need people to be analytical? Is this purely an administrative meeting? Do we need people to be more creative and iterative? Who's going to be at this meeting? Is it going to be a lot of larks and morning people? Is it going to be a lot of owls and evening people? Um, we don't even begin to ask those questions. We basically say, we, our only criterion is availability. We say is, Kevin available, is Cody available, and is conference room 3C open? That's it. And and what we know from, and this is a huge mistake, because what we know from this research on timing within the confines of a day is that, as I said before, our brain power doesn't remain static over the course of the day. It changes. Our brain power changes over the course of a day. And almost every decision that that organizations make is, is built on the premise that that's not true, that our brain power doesn't change, that our brain power is consistent across the day. Um, and so that's why we bring zero strategic thinking to, to meetings. That said, there, you know, there also are ways to, I mean, to me, like the, the, the best improvement for meetings, and there's research on this as well, is this. So think about standing meetings, meetings where people are standing up, right? So there's some research showing if people are standing during the meeting, do they get more done, less done, or the same amount done? they get the same amount of work done, except the meetings are substantially shorter. So that to me is like a massive productivity improvement. You know, the default should be, hey, if we're, you know, the default should be, we're gonna have a meeting, but we're gonna be standing. And you have to convince me that we, 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 should, all be, we should all be sitting. There are other places that have done even more radical things, which is basically attending a meeting is optional. You don't have to go to any meeting you don't want to. That it's the, the person convening the meeting has to make the case why anybody should go to that meeting. I love both of those. And then Kevin, you guys have uh, meetings on bikes and out running in the in the forest, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Um, we definitely have uh, definitely have walking meetings. I um, I will say this: uh, 
man, I, I don't know if standing is going to make it shorter in a noon world because I think everyone likes to stand. Um, no, you guys might be too being... fit. <laughs> <laughs> it might, it might be not a deterrent, right? It's like, let's get this over with. And our team's like, yeah, we're standing. Um, there, there is something there, but I, I actually do love the idea of a stand, stand meeting. And we've had that conversation. I think, you know, one of the, the questions I that's come to mind here for both of you is when, Dan, when you said that meetings are optional, I get that to one extent. However, let me, let me give you a challenge that we have on the Noon team when it comes to meetings, but also that relates to communication. And what I find is our team is very driven. And if I use a swimming analogy, they stay in their lane and they swim hard and they swim in hard, but they don't actually know what their teammates doing in the other lane or the other lane or the other lane. And so um, I'm trying to get the cross collaboration to really go to another level. And I'm like, let's remove those, the ropes for the lanes and let's turn this more thinking like water polo and where we're trying to get the basically work at the way down the pool to, to scoring a goal, if you will. Um, and meaning it takes cross collaboration and the leadership role can rotate depending on where we are at a certain scenario. So that meeting comment, what, what I'm struggling with here right now is if a meeting is optional and they really are really required, because I think some are optional, some are required. If you use the Amazon mentality, I think from what I understand, I think Bezos would say if they're optional, then they're not, they shouldn't even be in the room or even the virtual room. Um, whether we agree with that, that's probably one conversation, but the, the, where I'm going on is if it's optional, it's like, how do I, how do I get that collaboration? Cause I really needed Jane Doe to be here with John. And you know what? Jane said, no, I, I'm, I'm not going, I don't want to go to that. How do we handle that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think you have to get to the point of like, why isn't, why isn't Jane going to that? Why isn't Jane going to that meeting? And, and I would, I, what I would think is that beforehand, the person convening the meeting would make the, would, instead of just putting it on the calendar, would make the case to Jane, like, hey, Jane, I'm inviting this meeting. Here's the reasons why I'm inviting you. Here's what I think you, you can contribute. Uh, I think that makes it substantially more likely that Jane would end up going to the meeting. Um, if you end up having, if you, if, if you have these meetings that are simply, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the person who's the person who's convened the meeting, the, 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 the norm inside the organization is that if you are asked to go to a meeting, you go to the meeting. Uh, I think that that is corrosive. And, and we also see it in, from a time based perspective, too. So let's go back to I mean, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Let's go back. to I don't know why we we're talking about copywriters so much today, but, but I remember being in Philadelphia a couple months ago and we're talking about this, this talking about some of this research on on time of day and what our um, you know, time of day and, and our cognitive abilities. And, um, and this copywriter, this guy said, hey, I'm a copywriter and I totally agree with you. I definitely do my best writing in the morning, but I can't because uh, my boss always has me in meetings all morning. You know? And, and so, uh, so I think that's another, that's another factor. I think the default needs to be, let's not have a meeting. When in fact, the default is usually let's have a meeting. If we have any sort of, if we have to do any kind of communication, collaboration, or working things out, the default is to have a meeting. And I think if we flip the default and say, um, you know, meeting is not our first choice for how to do things, then I think it's an experiment worth having. Um, I just, I, I find that in most organizations, um, most meetings are not, are, are too long, too unfocused, and um, unsatisfying. And, and there's some interesting research on this from a guy named Steven Rogelberg at, at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, he's done research on meetings, finding that at the end of a meeting, there is, there's always one person who thinks the meeting has gone well. And that's the person who called the meeting. That's interesting. No one else. Thinks I, I, uh, I would actually mirror what, what Dan said back to you, Kevin. And, and to use your analogy, <clears throat> I think the opportunity is that in a swimming race with your lanes, it is it is head down. And uh, in a water polo game, there's an opportunity. You're bobbing above water and you've got that opportunity to communicate up front and to let everyone know. And, and yeah, I, I would come to that solution as well where there, there is an opportunity to communicate in advance of why this person and, and kind of use that 
uh, not sales, but salesmanship to convince those people why they should be there. Um, and again, that, you know, that goes back to some of the, the things you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, uh, leadership and accountability, uh, and even to a certain extent, grit. Um, if, uh, you know, sometimes there are just meetings that you need to, to churn through. Um, but, but, you know, going back to a, a similar kind of point that we've been talking about, I think there's also a part of meetings where we're just beholden to, uh, Microsoft exchange and, and Google meetings and, and the way that they're set out. And so, you know, we get to click a button and say, say something's optional, uh, or click a button and say someone is required, but I don't think that's necessarily enough. And, and there needs to be something else. And, and so, you know, can we remodel it a little bit to actually fit with what we need rather than just uh, going with the template? I'll give you another, I'll give you another example. I'll give you another idea. I don't, I don't think this is a great idea because I can, I, I can make a very robust case against it, but I'll throw it out there for you. Is that imagine you have a, imagine you have managers in a, in a reasonably large organization, basically give them a meeting quota. And they say, you are allowed to attend only X meetings per week. Um, and you have to make your calendar public. So you're allowed to go to six meetings a week. I think that the number of meetings could, could be reduced significantly without any cost to productivity or collaboration. Give them a meeting quota. They, make every meet, that was, that, they could make every meeting count. I like where you're going. That's not such. I really do. I I uh, I frequently say, you know, the last thing I want you guys, you guys meaning the the collective team, and when I'm talking to folks, be careful. I go, I want you to collaborate more. What I don't want you to do is meeting yourself to death, um, which is kind of where we're uh, probably not very good grammar on my part, but the intent is the same. I think what you're describing, and it's it's absolutely a concern of mine. So I I really am taking this to heart. I love this idea of like default let's not have a meeting that doesn't mean don't collaborate right right um right and, right and I, I like that and then to your point i also hey, think that if you had a oh go. go go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry kevin go ahead well no i was just repeating like your quota i think was an interesting way to do it and then they're going man if i can only have six meetings or eight meetings a week i got to make sure that this is the one um like each one you're really going to evaluate that right right so um, the other thing is, is that, um, I, I don't know, maybe this is my own the scars of my own experience, but you know, I've been working for myself for 20 years, but before that I did work in organizations and I always felt that when I would go to a meeting, you know, and, and here's the thing for me, the jobs that I had meetings were, um, generally not very helpful to my being able to do my job because I actually had to do the work like a meeting meant I couldn't do my work. Um, but yet there were other people who seemed to be their job was to go to a meeting. And, and what they would do is they would come into these meeting rooms and they would sit in the chair and you could see them kind of like kicking back saying, ah, I got something to do for an hour. And it's really kind of easy just to sit here and opine and not really do anything. And I'm not really missing anything because I'm actually not doing any actual work. Um, and so I always wanted to smoke out those people who weren't contributing anything, who weren't doing anything, but were simply attending meetings and, you know, and reveling in being able to go to meetings. Yeah. Hopefully no one at noon's reveling to go to meetings. I hear you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to smoke that out too. Hopefully it's yeah. not me. <laughs> or actually, if it is me, you know, I, I actually, all kidding aside, um, the smoke says, pull me out of the meeting because I'm not adding any value. That's fine as well. Yeah. Awesome. So another topic that I want to run by you guys, and I know you both have opinions on it, is sleep. And uh, particularly in the workforce, we talk about naps and everyone knows about Google's nap pods and, and all that kind of thing. But um, Dan, I'd love to hear kind of the, the science behind sleep and, and, and napping. And then also uh, I'd love Kevin's uh, interpretation of that from the, the practical standpoint as well. But uh, let's start with you, Dan, because uh, it's something that's close to me. I love napping during the middle of the day. And I think it makes me a lot more uh, sharp in the afternoon, particularly as a writer. Um, but what, what does the science say? And then what's your opinion on sleep, you know, in that kind of nine to five bracket? Uh, so there's a lot of research on naps and what it tells us pretty, um, pretty clearly is that naps are generally pretty good for us. Um, they restore uh, some mental energy. They can be deliver a mood boost. 
uh, on balance, they're quite good for us. The, the wrinkle is that the very best naps of all are extremely short, between 10 and 20 minutes longer, long. Once you sleep, once you nap beyond that roughly 20 minute mark, if you, if you, if you nap for less than 10 minutes, you don't get much of a benefit. If you nap for more than 20 minutes, you begin to accumulate what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you wake up from an extended nap. And so if people can nap between, say, 10 and 20 minutes long, that is extremely effective. Uh, and I, I think that the, the research on that, to me, is, is, is really overwhelming. Those very short naps are extraordinarily effective. Couldn't agree more. And um, funnily enough, just this thought came to mind. In Australia, um, when the driving death statistics were skyrocketing, that was actually the reaction was they launched a, a, an advertising campaign and it was called, it was about 15 minute power naps. And the idea was, you know, Australia, mm. because it's so, uh, so vast, you know, it's uh, essentially a landmass the size of Canada, uh, which is huge, mm-hmm. or the United States. Um, but it was uh, connected by highways. And so the idea was that pulling over and having a 15-minute power nap would save your life. And that was actually the tagline. And, um, yeah, and it started this this trend of people you'd see all down the highways, just cars pulled over and, and you know, the reclined seat at a, you know, 45-degree angle and, and someone just having a 15-minute nap. And, it you know, the, the numbers started to decline. So... Um, that was just something I thought of. I, I hadn't racked that up, but uh, as you were talking there, you know, talking about 15 minutes, that's what came to mind. Mm. Um, what about you, Kevin? Uh, what's your opinion on sleep and napping and particularly around output? Sleep, come on. Naps, that's for quitters. Just <laughs> So all kidding aside, I, I am intrigued by um, the idea of naps. I personally on a weekend, because I, I truthfully never take a nap during the week, um, maybe because my schedule doesn't permit. Maybe I'm in too many meetings per the previous <laughs> previous question. Um, I, I like I, there's no way I would have time the way my day typically goes to, to take a nap during the day. Um, but th- on most days, most days, that doesn't mean that's right. Uh, so I think it's this is an interesting one, because how do you make it? socially acceptable because it 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 definitely has like a feeling about it of like really do you really need to do that um like we're all like trying to crank and then you want to take a nap like seriously um so again i actually do agree with you like i think there's there um from the little i know and i don't know nearly as much as you guys on this uh but the idea of getting better mental acuity like restoring your mental energy a nap absolutely has to pay dividends, but yet it's not socially acceptable. And I'm not sure it, it, it concerns me um, if it's not fully embraced across the organization. It feels like it almost could be frowned upon. And I'm, I'm and we're not even like a traditional, like really structured, formal company. Like we're, we're, we're pretty like easygoing people um, to give you perspective, just even dress code alone there is no dress code at noon, wear whatever you want. Like people show up in their mm-hmm. bike kits commuting to work and they may or may not change out of it. That's it. Seriously. That could happen on any given day. Um, so we're, we're not that structured, but yet if we were to do naps, I think, I think it could have a lot of cynicism and laughter and like, what, like maybe some would buy into it, but I don't think everyone would. And that concerns me. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair point. Um, I think I could eat, I, I, you can totally see how, how that could happen. I, you know, again, it's like any kind of, it's like any kind of social norm. And remember the social norms in the workplace have changed over time. So at mm-hmm. one point it would have been unimaginable, you know, let's go back 30 years. Okay. And somebody says, hi, I'd like to bring my dog to work. <laughs> People would say, what the hell are you talking about? All right. Yeah, and now, yeah, okay. Yeah. So the, so the, so the norm changes or even what you were talking about before it's like, Oh, I want to wear my bike clothes to work. What? Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember the day when, when the when the when the breakthrough in liberating uh, office workers from the shackles of conformity was casual Friday. You had one day a week when oh, yeah. I remember you couldn't, you know, where you where you could you could do didn't that. have so to wear I, a tie. I think it's possible to change. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's po- I think it's possible. So so I think it's possible to change the norm. I I don't I don't think that you know widespread office napping is the most important thing that organizations should be working on right now. I mean, it, I, I, you know, I think that they should be tolerant of it if people want to take a nap. But I, I don't think it, it has a, as, as a great sense of urgency as it does, at least to me, yeah. Yeah. in having people do the right work at the right time, of factoring when into in a strategic way into people's schedules, um, especially especially things like 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 meetings. Um, but you know, how does you know social norms change in a way? I, I don't know. I, they they can change in a number of different ways. One of the most important things, if you want to actually encourage people to take naps, there, I think there are two things that you can do. And I'm not saying that this, I really truly don't think this should be necessarily a huge priority, but naps are good for you. And if you want to have that extra benefit for your, for your workers, the best way to do is this. The two best important things are this. One, make it easy. So that could be nap pods. It could be couches. It could be a quiet room, that kind of thing. The other one is, is, the other one is that the leaders of the organization should model the behavior. So if Kevin wants people yeah. at noon suddenly to take naps, he should make sure that there are convenient, quiet places to take naps, and Kevin should model that behavior. In the same way you model the behavior of, hey, I'm the, you know, I, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm the head of this company, but yeah, I'm staying at an Airbnb. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting you guys at the Motel 6 while I stay at the Ritz-Carlton. Yep, that's true. That makes sense. And by the way, an alternative that I think could be um, to uh, naps, knowing the social norms I, I'm concerned about, one of the things that I um, kind of relaying back to Cody, you you shared this with me a while back, and it was um, it was Malcolm Gladwell and uh, David uh, Epstein, mm-hmm. and they were talking on the um, basically the the ten thousand hours was kind of demystified a little bit, and that you needed to try other things to um, change the pathways in your brain. Uh, and I think it correlates to this. Here's where I'm going. And, Dan, I don't know if you agree or disagree on this one. I'm, I'm curious to get both of your thoughts. But one of the things that I, I think is good is when I see people taking a break, whether they want to go for a run or do something like that to get that mental energy or someone wanting to do a crossword puzzle. And, and by the way, that or read a book. Uh, that, like, that changing the wiring of your brain and kind of walking away from what you were working on right then can I think help you when you come back to it in a, in a really interesting way. And it, when I look at that and I think of what someone's reading a book, I think some people on the team say, wait, what is he doing? Or what is she doing? Like what? Mm-hmm. They're not working. So I'm trying to break down a little bit, even that. And that, that's how, and I understand the reaction right away, but it's like, no, you need to do that. This is a good thing. Like this is a, that's okay. I like not even okay actually can be really good. And I think the other second thing could be um, when I was l- learning more about sleep and the studies that I've been trying to dig into on this one is the power of meditation, which by the way, I don't do. So I'm not, pra- I'm not saying I'm practicing what I'm preaching here. So I need to, I need to get there. Uh, but the idea of 90 second um, meditation, meditative state of just like kind of get that restful, clear your mind um, for a bit, whether it's 90 seconds, maybe it's five minutes, whatever that is, that could maybe help the, um, the restorative mental energy that you talked about that a nap could do. I know it's not the same, but it might at least get you down the path to helping the brain work harder. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no question. I I think what Kevin is saying is is actually really important on, on all of these things. So it doesn't really matter. So, so like, like, like for me, like I would, I, again, it's, it is so much about changing the social norm. And so whether it's meditation, whether it's reading a book, whether it's taking a nap, for me, the, the higher urgency would be, the, uh, we can think of naps as a subset of taking a break. So if people are taking a break of any kind, that to me feels like a sense of urgency. But the way to change that social norm is, uh, is, is again, I, I do think that's the two-part recipe, make it easy and then have it blessed by the people at the, at the top. And so, so a way to change, begin changing the social norm is, is not to say uh, it's for Kevin as the, as the boss. If somebody pulls an all-nighter to say, oh, uh, not to say, oh, you badass, you pulled an all-nighter, you're really committed. But instead to say someone who is taking a walk, 15-minute walk break, or is reading a book, or is taking 15 minutes to meditate, say to the other people, oh, look at that badass there meditating. Look at that badass there reading a book. Look at that badass there taking a walk. And that begins to change the social oh. norm. And that's, yeah, for me, again, the, 
I'm trying to own this space in between sports and business. And this is why it's really interesting is because every single athlete that anyone looks up to, what they do during the day is they nap and they sleep and they take care totally. of their sleep. And and so totally. you, you, you can hear all the stories in the world about Kobe Bryant going and shooting uh, free throws for X amount of hours after every game. But I can tell you what uh, Giannis does before every game. He goes home and he sleeps. And I was in the UFC high performance facility last month and I'll tell you what they have, they have nap pods everywhere and, um, you know, this is this is what I'm really interested in at the moment is uh, now that we've realized that the efficiency uh, isn't necessarily coming from the machines and the factories and that it's actually coming from the people, uh, where can we grab learnings from? And, and my big case is that professional sports, because they've been trying to get performance out of human beings for the last uh, generation, there's a whole heap of lessons there, including sleep, that we could be looking to. And it's not athletic performance uh, necessarily that we're looking to translate, but there's some little gems there and, and sleep is certainly one of them. And uh, LeBron sleeps before every game, uh, Derek Jeter slept before every game and anyone that you look up to, I can tell you exactly what they're doing about three hours before game time. Um, and I think that's telling. Uh, Lads, this could go on for another couple of hours. We could do a Tim Ferriss-length four-and-a-half-hour chat, I'm sure, but uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. So we'll do final promos. Uh, Kevin, where can people find you? Where can they find Noon? And how can they follow along with everything that you've got going on? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Cody. Uh, Noon Hydration. So, you know, all the social media, Instagram handles, look up Noon, at Noon Hydration, and you can find out what we're up to there. Lots of, lots of fun stuff. My um, My personal... Uh, social media handle is uh, clean underscore lantern and uh, my aspiration I don't know if I'm doing it very well but the idea is how can I help be a little bit of a light or a beacon if you will um, to create a, a clean planet clean product and clean sport so um, nice. yeah uh, thanks for thanks for having me if you haven't tried the product either go and try it in UN uh, and uh, it is a mind-blowingly good product um, uh, Dan Pink, where can the one person that isn't already following you or aware of you, where can they find you and, uh, and follow along with what you're doing? Online, danielpink.com. On Twitter, Daniel Pink. <laughs> are you telling me there aren't too many people with your name? There are a surprising number of people with my name, unfortunately. So, um, so I didn't get my Gmail address earlier, uh, <sighs> early enough. So my email address is, uh, my, my Google email is Daniel Howard Pink. And I, I, I very rarely admit my middle name, <laughs> but I was forced to. I think there's there's one other Cody Royal that I can find, which is bizarre because I don't even have the the traditional uh, spelling of Royal. But I think it's, he's in Salt Lake City. I'll have to source him out one time. Yeah, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for this. This has been amazing. I just I just want to say one thing, um, if I could. Sure. I know this has been amazing. I just want to say thanks to both of you guys. This is this is great. And if I had one one lesson about culture, um, if there's like there's so many things, is and it's always in my head, and that's why I just wanted to share. It. It's such a simple thing. It's um, in this case, you are who you surround yourself with. I think the part that people forget, this is kind of the leadership part, is people are surrounding themselves with you, um, and that's uh, that's just a lesson that when I was thinking about this talk, I'm like. Man, if there's one thing I just want anyone to take away on any team, you are part of the solution and you are who you surround yourself and they're surround themselves with you. So anyway, thanks again. Amazing. Truth. Thank you, mate. Uh, lads, this has been fantastic and um, we might have to revisit it at a later date and do a, an episode 2.0. But uh, and until then, uh, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.